you know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come. In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. I say it every week, so we might as well begin this week with the same introduction. Here we go. My friends, you are in for a treat. Why, you ask? Well, as the New York Times bestselling author of Unwinding Anxiety and The Craving Mind, Dr. Judd Brewer is an expert in addiction, anxiety, and modifying unhealthy behaviors to establish new positive habits. Who doesn't need some of those in their life? With more than 20 years of rigorous research at Brown University, Dr. Judd uses his proven evidence-based guidance to those struggling with unwanted behaviors and everyday addictions. He's passionate about understanding how our brains work. And Dr. Judd has collaborated with U.S. Olympic athletes, coaches, foreign government ministers, corporate leaders to help them make deep, permanent change in their lives. Today on this episode, Dr. Judd's going to join to explain why our habits are so hard to overcome and then a clear solution-oriented step so that you and I can take and implement in order to conquer those decisions. Using curiosity and kindness, Dr. Judd shares how to break the cycle of worry and fear that drives anxiety and addictive tendencies. Leaders, friends, family, whether you or someone you care for is struggling with compulsively checking social media or binge eating or drinking excessively or smoking or biting your fingernails or a million other things you wish you could stop doing, this conversation today is for you. So my friends, grab your favorite Live Inspired journal, grab a pen to take some notes, Grab something to sip on while you listen to my friend and soon to be yours. His name is Dr. Judd Brewer. Judd, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thanks for having me. Hey, man, it really is an honor to have you on our show. I gave you a roaring introduction on the front side of this conversation that our audience just heard. But if you were to make a new friend at a cocktail party or at a grocery store and they said, Judd, hmm, tell me about you. How do you respond? What, what, what's your typical introduction of yourself? Well, if you're into that brevity thing, I would say just call me dude. Uh, but, you know, I just, I grew up as a BMX bike kid on in Indiana, just trying to stay out of trouble. Looking back on that, I think I was very curious. I love to destroy my toys to see how they worked. 
harder to put them back together than take them apart. That's one thing I learned. And also uh, love a good challenge. When my high school, you know, college counselor told me I never get into Princeton, that's where I applied. <laughs> it's a big, you know, okay, let's see. <laughs> or uh, other words. <laughs> uh, you proved the counselor wrong. And we'll, we'll get to Princeton in a moment. But I, I want to spend a little bit more time on that BMX bike and hang out a little bit more with a fellow Midwesterner for a moment in Indiana. My mom, you know, you and I were talking before I hit record about superpowers. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those are innate and other times they're given to us through the model of a human being in our lives. And I think we both shared mighty women as examples to model. Talk a little bit about your mom. Yeah, my mom, mighty, fierce and fiercely loving. You know, she basically raised four kids by herself. And as a way to make ends meet, she went to law school at night. <laughs> I remember uh, when I was old enough, probably not old enough to really cook, but old enough to cook because I had to. She'd give us all you know, a, a recipe a, a, a day of the week, you know, Monday through Thursday. And so each of the kids had to take turns uh, cooking dinner for everyone. And then on Friday, she would cook because she was busting her butt, you know, going to night school, becoming a lawyer so she could feed us. And my mom is, has always been and continues to be a, a lover of education. Uh, so put us through Jesuit high school in Indiana as a way to help really give us a good education and instill this love of learning. And I think that's something that she modeled, you know, wonderfully, whether it was always learning something new or just being curious about how the world works. You had some passions, I understand, growing up. One of them was actually BMX riding. That was not a joke from the, this uh, neuroscientist. What was it about the racing that you loved? I remember I was a paper boy uh, back in the day, back when there were physical papers <laughs> that you could deliver. And that was my first job, you know, I was like 10 or 11. And I would, you know, save up money from my paper route to buy BMX bikes. And my best friend at the time, his name was Charlie. Uh, he and I would just, that's how we would spend our summers and afternoons after school is, you know, riding our bikes around the neighborhood and uh, going to the woods and, you know, jumping and things like that. And at some point we learned that there was a BMX track in Indiana, in Indianapolis. Major Taylor Velodrome, named after this famous uh, African-American cyclist, actually. Um, and we would go and, you know, in the summer, we'd go and race on the weekends. And it was, yeah, it was a fun, uh, you know, fun way to not get in too much trouble, I'd right. say. Right. Well, good. Uh, trouble's going to find you as you age throughout life, including anxiety, which we'll talk about, I guess, next. I know you love music. Apparently you love science too. Did you always love science or did you uh, discover that as you got older? I always loved science. Yeah. I remember in high school when, <laughs> okay, this is a little geeky, but when I first started learning the Newtonian laws of physics, you know, the, uh, the laws of motion, I remember being in our cross country van, driving to a meet and dropping objects from the top of the like the ceiling of the van and timing how long it took them to hit the floor and being amazed at how I could measure that distance based on time not without, you know, without a meter stick or a yardstick because you can use time as a way to measure using gravity to, uh, to measure height. And so I, I think I was always 
always lover of always lover of science. Yeah. Um, was a chemistry major in college, thought that's what I was going to do. Like I remember my my freshman year, I took my intro to chemistry class and learned about these molecules called cadaverine and putrescine. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. That's why corpses smell. It's these fatty acid molecules, you know, and it's like interacting with these receptors and then signaling to our brain that like this stinks, <laughs> but it was the neatest thing. I thought it was the neatest thing in the world. So that's up in Princeton. Eventually though, you, you made it back to the Midwest. You went to Washington University for medical school. Yeah, I did an MD PhD program there. What? And as you're doing all this, like, you know, most of the time when you major in something or you go to medical school, you have a, a vision in mind of what you think you're going to do with it. As you're hanging out, at Washington University, what do you think ultimately you're going to do with all this experience? Honestly, I was like, well, I've got eight years to figure it out. <laughs> I just knew I loved science. And so that was the PhD side of things. And I loved how the body worked. And I wanted to understand how we could bring that science together and do medical science research. And so I just, I felt like a kid in the candy store. I didn't have to worry too much about my grades in medical school because my medical school class was going to graduate way ahead of me <laughs> right. you know, and I'd get it. I'd have a PhD to take to residency <laughs> interviews. And so I was just there for the love of learning. And, you know, I, it was a great, I learned all sorts of things, discovered all sorts of things, really interested in like why we get sick when we get stressed and true story. Well, Here's the embellishment, but the the way the MD PhD programs work in general is that you do a couple of years of medical school, and then you do your PhD for long enough to forget everything you've learned in medical school, <laughs> and then you go back onto the wards for your third year of medical school, and you're supposed to pick it right back up, and then you pick what specialty you're going to do. So, when I went back onto the wards, this is my seventh year, I really couldn't, you know, I was like, well, I'll, I'll do a psychiatry as a, as this first rotation back on the wards. Cause I know I'm not going to become a psychiatrist and I'll use it as a way to remember how to interview patients. <laughs> Long story short, I'm a psychiatrist. <laughs> you mentioned something in that answer that I'm, I'm curious about. You said, I learned why you get sick when you experience stress. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. Cause I don't know why. Well, there are a lot of things involved there, but basically this might come, this might sound intuitive or shocking, but our minds and our bodies aren't separate. <laughs> Often we walk through life, this disembodied thinking head and, and kind of ignore our bodies. Well, it turns out that's not quite such a good idea. Uh, and stress can affect, the short answer is that stress affects our immune system and it's a, it can suppress our immune system. And so there are certain types of physiologic stressors that are helpful that kind of help uh, survive in immediate situations where there's danger. And there are chronic stressors that are kind of mind made where the more we worry about something, the more we get caught up in anxiety, for example, the worse off we are, you know, well, it's not good for our health. Uh, anxiety, for example, is really bad for both our mental and our physical health. So I was interested in, you know, I remember my, my brother's wife, she, the, the first morning of their honeymoon, right after they got married, she got sick. And it was like, this can't be a coincidence. I was in college at the time. So I thought that was unfortunate for their honeymoon, but it was fascinating from a scientific perspective, like that her body could just hold off, hold off, hold off. And then it's like, okay, 
you can get sick now. <laughs> just she was sick her whole honeymoon. My understanding is you obviously in medical school and grabbing your PhD, you're going to be experiencing quite a bit of stress. But but you never identified that also as like anxiety. You you were dealing with a lot of anxiety at that time as well. Yeah, I didn't know I was dealing with anxiety. I had kind of compartmentalized it. And, you know, I I remember my senior year of college actually getting what's called irritable bowel syndrome. And I thought I just had had bacterial infection because I'd done a bunch of backpacking in college. I love backpacking. And so when I went to the student health, the doctor was like, you know, do you think it could be stress? And I was like, no, I'm not stressed. You know, I'm, I'm a vegetarian. I play the violin. I run every day, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, okay, <laughs> good luck. Of course, he gives me the Cipro and it doesn't work like the antibiotic and it doesn't work because it wasn't an, a bacterial infection. It was my body saying, dude, you got to pay attention to this anxiety. And that was, I just, I didn't know how it could manifest. It really can show up in many, many different ways. And for me, it was my body telling me, hey, you know, this is, you're, you're kind of stressed out. Yeah. I think that experience is one many of us share of you, you're so used to your own shadow that you don't even recognize anxiety as part of it. So I'm curious, why do you think we're so poor at, at self-diagnosing our own stress? There are probably many reasons, but one of the main ones is when it becomes insidious, we just think, oh, that's who I am. You yeah. Know? And so we don't even notice it. All right. I, I think also that because it can show up in so many different ways, uh, for example, irritable bowel syndrome, you know, it's not like, okay, here, here are the three things that are pathognomonic, that are, that are like diagnostic of what, what stress or anxiety are. It's, you know, it, it can show up in many different ways for, for different people, ranging from just this low level grind of chronic anxiety to full on panic attacks for some people. So, man, when, when did you go from, pushing away the doctor who's saying, man, I think you might be having a little bit of anxiety here. That might be the cause of this to recognize. And indeed it was. And then, and then what do you do about that? The first step there, I think was that at the beginning of medical school, I did realize that I was pretty stressed out. I was having trouble sleeping. And at the time, I remember reading this book by John Kabat-Zinn called Full, Full Catastrophe Living. I, I read some of it and then started listening to these cassette tapes of meditation. And I realized around then that I had no clue how my mind worked and started to open up to my own experience instead of, you know, running away from it. And that's when I not only realized that I had no idea how my mind worked, but there was, oh, there's, there's a fair amount of stress here. And on top of that, the, this meditation thing that I was trying out seemed to be kind of helpful. So you, you've mentioned this in the past around the meditation thing and the mindfulness thing, but also your struggle with the thing. For you, why was it so difficult to, uh, to settle your thoughts? Oh, I don't think I'm unique. <laughs> so many people, like, how do I just make them stop? And <laughs> it took me about 10 years to realize it's not about making them stop. Uh, thoughts are pretty spontaneous. In Buddhist psychology, they actually describe them as a sixth sense in terms of the, like these things just showing up. Like when you see something, you're just, you know, it's going to register as seeing. When you hear something, it's going to register as hearing. And they categorize thinking in the same way, which is it's just going to show up. Thoughts are going to show up. 
and thoughts aren't the problem. It took me about 10 years to figure that out. All right. So if thoughts aren't the problem, then what is? It's our relationship to the thoughts. It's how we either hold on to the pleasant thoughts, you know, whether it's daydreaming or whatever, or we push away the unpleasant ones. We're often not willing to just be with whatever is coming up. It's ooh, pleasant, more pleasant. It's ooh, unpleasant, less unpleasant, which actually goes all the way back to our basic survival mechanisms. You know, that's how we learn. And for example, this is an evolutionarily conserved process all the way back to the sea slug. It's called positive and negative reinforcement. And it's set up actually to help us remember where food is so we can go back and find it in the future. You know, this is back before refrigerators and fast food and food delivery. So our ancient ancestors had to remember, learn where food was and remember where to find it. They also had to learn where danger was and how to avoid it. In modern day, when we don't have as many, for most of us, we're fortunate enough not to have, you know, immediate danger lurking all the time. That mechanism is still at play. And so we start to have fear about the future, you know, and voila, we've got anxiety, for example. And so these very basic, very strong and fundamental learning mechanisms, you know, that are there to help us survive, they kind of get co-opted in modern day. So as they're being co-opted, tell me then how does mindfulness, because it seems like that's one of the first steps is like being aware, man, being aware that this stuff is constantly nagging for your attention. How does mindfulness help us take the next right step forward? Well, you can think of it this way. If we don't know that we're stuck in kind of running after thoughts or, or pushing away thoughts or running after pleasant experiences or pushing away unpleasant experiences or whatever, there's no way we can step out of those. Our minds set up these processes, positive and negative reinforcement to help us learn things so that we can set them up as a habit. So we don't see that these are habits of wanting more pleasant, of pushing away unpleasant in all aspects of life. So that's the first step. You know, I think of mindfulness as this curious awareness. So we're, ju we're just, we're being aware of what's happening and we're curious. We're not jumping to conclusions or prejudging anything. And so the first step is really just recognizing that we're stuck in a, a habit loop, basically, right. whether it's you know, fantasizing about the future, whether it's worrying about the future or whatever. So listen, I, I still have an opportunity of just asking all these questions to actually steal the information to apply it in my own life and with my spouse and with my kids and for our listeners. So I'm just going to keep peppering you with these questions. You, you mentioned there the habit loop. Mm -hmm. uh, some of our listeners and viewers may not know what that is. So first of all, unpack that and describe its role in our lives. We may not even know it's happening. Yeah. You, so let's, let's give concrete examples. A habit loop, for example, is how we set up all, all habits, hence the name habit loop. And it actually only requires three key ingredients. Let's say one is a trigger. Second one is a behavior. And the third one's a result or a, from a neuroscience standpoint, a reward. So going back to that remembering where food is example, if we're out foraging for food, we see some food, there's the trigger, we eat the food, there's the behavior, and then our stomach sends this dopamine signal to our brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. And that's how we set up habit loops where we're like, 
we get the, and actually interestingly dopamine goes from firing when we first get it like oh surprise yeah. there's food to anticipating so it, when we're in the cave so to speak later and we're hungry dopamine fires and says go get food so it's this motivation molecule often it's it's misconceived as a pleasure molecule it lighting a fire under your butt is not supposed to be pleasant it's supposed to get you to get off your butt and go do something so habit loops are actually set up well think of it this way imagine if we had to relearn everything every day not just groundhog day where things happen the same way but we have to relearn everything so you stumble out of bed you got to learn how to stand up and walk you got to learn how to put on your clothes you got to learn how to talk you got to learn how to walk you know, you got to learn how to make breakfast. We'd be exhausted before we even made it to breakfast and then start over the next day. So our brains are set up to learn these processes. I think of it as set and forget. You know, you set the process and you forget about the details. So it frees up your mind to be able to learn other things and learn new things. So we set up, I don't know how much, 95% of our lives are basically habit driven. I just gave a few examples and that was the before breakfast examples, right? So we can think of all the habits that we form. And as part of the formation process, our brains are constantly comparing things so that we can set the habit of what we like and what we don't like. So that's how we form habits is we're constantly trying new things out. And as we try them, our brain is categorizing them as, oh, this is good, do it again. Or, oh, this is unpleasant, avoid this in the future. And we set the habits to you know, move toward the pleasant things and move away from the unpleasant things. That's basically what uh, positive and negative reinforcement are set up for. And I'll, I'll mention this is such a fundamental process that the neuroscientist Eric Kendel got the Nobel Prize in the year 2000, showing that it's evolutionarily conserved all the way back to the sea slug. Amazing. So you're, you're talking about habits and some of the habits are getting out of bed and brushing your teeth hopping in the shower, waiting for the water to get warm first. All, all these things that we do without even thinking about it. And then there are these other habits that are a bit more destructive that we also do frequently without even thinking about it. Like grabbing a cigarette, like yeah. grabbing the seventh chocolate brownie, like grabbing another sip of beer and then another one, and then another one, and then another one. That's part of your work these days is helping people work through the addictions that are negatively affecting their lives. Mm-hmm. Why isn't willpower enough? A, a person who drinks too much knows. A person who smokes too much gets that this is not a great habit. Why isn't knowing enough? It's a great question. You know, in medical school, whether it was like for overeating, for example, there's this formula, calories in versus calories out. That formula is correct. If you reduce your caloric intake and you increase your caloric output, you're going to lose weight. That is a true statement. And so remember in medical school learning, well, okay, that makes sense. I just tell my patients to stop eating cake and start eating salad. They, as you pointed out, they already know this. And so when I started practicing as a psychiatrist and in particular focusing in addiction psychiatry, it wasn't as simple as telling my patients to stop smoking or stop overeating or even stop worrying. They already knew this. They just didn't know how to do it. And they already, they would, they thought that they had this lack of willpower, that there was something wrong with them. Yeah. So I went back to my science, put on my science hat and said, what am I missing here? 
And it turns out that this dominant paradigm, this paradigm that's been around forever, around, you know, just use your willpower, is not, <laughs> let's just say it's not backed up by neuroscience. What I mean by that is neuroscientists don't include willpower when they calculate behavior change, when they, and you can measure behavior change in all sorts of ways from mouse models to humans. It's not about willpower, yet it's a great sales tool for Weight Watchers or whoever else is trying to sell you a program to just follow their formula. And then when you fail, they can say, you're the problem. It's not the formula. You should sign up for another year. So people feel bad about themselves and then <laughs> eat some food to make themselves feel better, ironically, or smoke a cigarette or whatever, and then wonder what's wrong with them. Mm. So when I started failing at helping my patients quit smoking and whatever, I looked back at the ancient Buddhist psychology that was underlying my own mindfulness practice. And I was like, well, is there something here? Because there is a lot written and talked about in terms of craving, you know, in, in habits and in habitual ways of being. And it turns out that the ancient Buddhist psychologists actually were describing positive and negative reinforcement way before paper was even invented. I, I wrote a bit about this in, in my book, The Craving Mind, where it's uncanny how they'd already figured this out without mathematical models, without graduate students, without, you know, without any of this stuff. It was just, they sat down, looked at their own minds and mapped out the process of how this works. And it, again, it has nothing to do with willpower. We can tell ourselves to stop doing things, but that's not how our brains work. I think of it this way, that you can summarize it as our thinking brains are not nearly as strong as our feeling bodies. And what that means is if you look at from a neuroscience perspective, the prefrontal cortex, which is thought to be where cognitive control, I'm going to say resides, it's really more of a distributed process, but it it's implicated in cognitive control. It's the youngest and the weakest part of the brain from an evolutionary perspective. So even if willpower was a thing, that part of the brain is the first that goes offline when we're stressed or when we're angry or when we're anxious or whatever. I even learned this acronym HALT. When you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, that's when you're more likely to relapse to whether it's a cigarette or cocaine or even chocolate cake. So yeah, we've been following this, this idea that seems to make sense around willpower. Oh yeah, willpower, I should use more of that. I could more, where can I get more? But we're not actually following the neuroscience, which says you're looking in the wrong place. So if that's where we're looking and the vast majority of us are looking there, where should we look instead? <laughs> well, if you look at the neuroscience, there are these very fundamental formulae, and there's one in particular that was developed by these two researchers, Raskorla and Wagner, back in the 1970s. And it's still the dominant paradigm today. Like it hasn't been uh, disproven or outcompeted. And basically, what they say is the only way to change behavior is through awareness. Now, they weren't Buddhists, but they said, here's the math. And what they said basically was that, you know, you're going to set up a reward value for a certain behavior. That's how habits form. And you're just going to keep that until something comes along and says, hey, that's really, you know, 
you should change that reward value. And the only way to change the reward value, it's not to, you can't tell yourself that cake doesn't taste good. It's not, that's not it. It's really to pay attention. And the long story short, they basically describe two things, one called positive prediction error and one's called a negative prediction error. So let's use a, the cake example. Let's say that I have a certain reward value set up in my brain for how much I like chocolate cake. And if a new bakery opens up in my neighborhood, I have to learn, oh, is their cake any good? So I go in there, I eat their cake. And if it's like the best cake that I've ever had, I get a positive prediction error. Dopamine fires in my brain and says, hey, remember this. This is a good place. They know what they're doing. On the other hand, if I eat it, I'm like, meh, not very good. I get a negative prediction error. I also get dopamine firing that says, remember this, don't come back here. You can do better elsewhere. So both of those help me learn. Both of those help me determine, oh, is this good cake or not? And neither of those has anything to do with willpower. I can't want the bakery to have good cake. It's just going to be good or not. All I can do is pay attention. If I don't pay attention, I'm going to have to actually go back and, you know, my wife asks, how's their cake? I'm like, well, I was on my phone when I ate it. I have to go back and eat it again to see if it's any good because I'm just going to be like, well, I like chocolate cake and I, I can't really tell you how good their cake is. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Although I'm going to ask you to give us like a super real world example. I know you've done a ton of work with people who smoke. I've had dear friends and dear family members who have, who have made that decision and have been unable through their willpower to break that connection. Mm. Your work is stunning, man. I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. That's something as boring and seemingly non-scientific as awareness and pay attention to could possibly affect someone positively to finally put out the cigarette for the final time. Would, would you explain that work you've done and what you've discovered along the way? Sure, sure. So the punchline first, in our first randomized controlled trial of what we did, we got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. So how did we, what did we do and why did it work that well? We had people pay attention as they smoke cigarettes. And I still do this in my clinic. Somebody comes in, they want to quit smoking. The first thing I have them do is pay attention when they smoke. And so they I'm look at me. Let me just stop you for one second. Yeah. 80% of our listeners are thinking, I'm not a smoker. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. What's your addiction? And then as Judd is going through that, plug in your addiction with the word smoke or smoker, because we've got something we're holding on to in our hand, in our mind, on technology, in some part of our life that we need to pay far closer attention to. And the work you're about to walk us through on smoking applies in all of our lives. Yes. So in that sense, let's use smoking and then let's use eating as an example as well, because we don't need to smoke to survive, but we do need to, you know, have a certain number of calories to survive. So let's start with smoking and then let's get into the nuance of, of other addictions as well. So with smoking, don't have to smoke to survive, but we can get addicted to nicotine and there are all these ways that we do that. So when I tell my patients to smoke, they look at me like I'm wait, did I just hear you? My doc told me to smoke. And that's where I say, yeah, smoke, but pay attention as you smoke. Don't try to stop yourself from smoking, but really put away all your distractions and really just pay attention as you smoke. What do they realize? Cigarettes taste like crap, right? They don't taste good. That's why manufacturers put menthol in them because they want to numb your, your taste buds so you don't really taste out. 
Nicotine's a toxin. And our body knows this. This is why when people first start smoking, they feel nauseated because their body is saying, you are ingesting poison. Yet, unfortunately, we have these receptors in our brain, these nicotinic acetylcholine receptors that actually can bind nicotine and then we can become addicted to nicotine. So once you get over that, you know, that initial thing, which is typically put your, we push ourselves over the hump, usually in our teenage years, because we'd rather be, there's a greater reward that comes from being cool or rebelling or doing whatever it is, the social thing yeah. that, uh, that we associated with smoking. And then we become addicted to smoking. And then we're like, well, I'm so cool. I'm addicted. I'm addicted to nicotine. And, and you know, in teenage years, that was like the, the the rebellious kids were like, "Oh, they're smoking. Oh, those rebels." It wasn't like, "Oh, they're gonna get lung cancer. Oh, emphysema sucks." Or, "Oh, man, skin aging, rapid skin aging." Wow. As teenagers, we're like, "Yeah, they're they're the rebels." So, long story short, when people pay attention, realize that cigarettes taste like crap, they become disenchanted with the smoking. They can't unsee that. Hmm. So when they hit that, that's a really important milestone, that negative prediction error, right? Their brain is reducing that reward value. And we can actually measure, we've done studies on this where we can measure that reward value getting below zero. It doesn't take that long for it to go below zero. Then they can, we train them to notice cravings. So for example, I had a patient, I was working at the VA hospital. I had a patient who walked in and he's like, doc, feel like my head will explode if I don't smoke. As a newly minted psychiatrist, I had not encountered this type of case before, you know, head exploding due to smoking. What do I do? So of course I fall back on my habits, which is to run up to the whiteboard and start drawing stuff. So <laughs> I go up to the whiteboard and I'm like, okay, uh, tell me what head exploding feels like. You know, it's like tension, tightness, burning. So he's giving these physical descriptions of craving. And then I was like, and I said, okay, how intense is it? He's like, it's getting more intense, more intense, more intense. And then there was this point where it peaked, his craving peaked and it started to go down in intensity and his eyes got really big. And I said, what happened? And he said, well, I always smoke before it peaks. I didn't realize that I could have a craving and it would actually go away on its own. And he's like, oh my God, this is amazing. And so he learned that we don't have to act on every craving. Our head will not explode. And in fact, when we bring that curious awareness to what's happening, the sensations themselves aren't going to kill us. They're not going to make our heads explode. We can actually learn to be with those sensations and be with them as they get bigger, as they rise, as they crest, and as they start to fade away. That is tremendously empowering. Mm. So that's smoking, right? But again, you could say, well, I don't have to smoke or I don't smoke. I don't know what this guy's talking about. Let's talk about eating, okay? How about overeating? How many of us were members of the clean plate club? You know, as a, <laughs> I was always fighting my siblings for food. You know, it's like, you got to get there. It's like the hungry, hungry hippo game where you got to get your, <laughs> you got to get your marbles um, before they eat them. And then we grow up with these habits of, you know, like, oh, I've got to clean my plate, even though I'm full, I'm not hungry anymore. So many people go through life with this habit of like overeating and either they're not paying attention or they don't know how to stop or they're feeling, uh, you know, it numbs them. A lot of my patients say, oh, if when I overeat, it kind of numbs me. I get into this zone where of, of overeating. So we created this app called Eat Right Now that helps people pay attention as they overeat. And we can measure that reward value change. 
And what we do is we have them pay attention as they eat, and then we have them feel into their direct experience and ask like, well, how do I feel now? It doesn't feel good to overeat. I've never had somebody that says, wow, this is amazing. I want to keep overeating. It's not great when our stomach feels like it's going to explode. And when we pay attention to that, that reward value changes and it's much easier to stop overeating. Ready for this? It only takes 10 or 15 times. This is in one of our studies. It only takes 10 or 15 times for somebody to pay attention as they overeat for that reward value to drop below zero, Wow! right? So they become disenchanted with the overeating, makes it much easier to step out of that habit. So you're asking us to do something that in our culture is next to impossible to do, which is to pay attention. Because I've got a great smartphone. And when I'm not on that, I'm on my radio. And when I'm not on that, the cable news is on in the background. And when I'm not doing those three things, I'm driving a kid to a practice and picking a dog up from like a million things are happening in life. We're overscheduled and over tethered to tech. In the midst of that storm, how do you encourage us to be pragmatic and realistic and paying attention to whatever it is, overeating, not yelling at my spouse when, when he or she is late, all the things that just trigger us. And we know it's not good, but we do it anyway. This is where we can leverage the neuroscience. And so in the Unwinding Anxiety book, I write about this three-step process of becoming aware of our habit loops, the first step. The second step is asking ourselves, what am I getting from this? So that's what we can do when we're overeating, when we're constantly doom scrolling. It's not called happy scrolling. (laughs) It's called doom scrolling. Because we're like a rat pressing a lever. You know, we are all of those <laughs> science experiments that that have proven that it's very easy to get addicted to stupid things. That's why they're called smartphones, because they are the people behind them programming them have made them extremely good at addicting us, yes. whether it's distraction or social media, which is all about talking about ourselves or being outraged or something self-referential. You know, all of that stuff is is tremendously addictive. So if we ask, what am I getting from this? That helps bring our awareness in so that if it's rewarding, we keep doing it. If it's an unhealthy habit, generally we don't see it as rewarding. We get that negative prediction error and we stop. But it really takes something causing enough suffering for us, enough pain in our lives for us to wake up and want to pay attention. Otherwise, we're just going to keep going on along on zombie mode. And we can't, there's not a lot we can do unless we really see how unrewarding it is. So one thing I have people, I'll do this with my patients or have people do, you know, when they're like, wow, I can't stop overeating. Uh, Well, why don't you overeat more? You know, and usually they can feel into their previous experience and be like, well, last time I did that, I really felt sick. And so they can see, oh, this isn't really rewarding. And that starts to plant the seed of exploring ways out. The other thing that I highlight is if they've tried all these other willpower-based methodologies and failed, they might feel like, oh, nothing's going to work. So this is where I just talk about a little bit of neuroscience, like we've just been doing. And I say, well, this this is how your brain actually works. Why don't you use your brain? And that becomes empowering for people and inspiring because they see, oh, this is how my brain works. They don't have to believe my studies. They can see it in their own experience. Hmm. When you and I were, before we recorded, I was telling you how I love the work you do because you bring forward the mind that I know in my heart. 
you, you have the data that I just intrinsically believe to be true. And so I, I want to share with our listeners some of the quotes that I've taken from your books and some of your talks that you've given. And as I read these, just unpack what you're saying in these words. You ready? Yeah. Let's go. Basically, basically, meditation helps your brain get out of its own way. It's mostly about being aware of your thoughts and not running after them in your mind. Yeah, absolutely. We've touched on this a little bit, but basically oh. it's about recognizing, oh, that's a habit pattern. I'm running after pleasant thoughts. I'm pushing away unpleasant thoughts. And the mindfulness or just that curious awareness helps us pause and see what we're getting from running after thoughts or pushing away thoughts. Long story short, it's exhausting when we really pay attention, right? Mm -hmm. It gets us nowhere. The next one, I think, plays directly off that one. So worrying does not take away tomorrow's troubles. It takes away today's peace. Absolutely, absolutely. And that, you know, this was one of the, I would have to say one of the most important things I've learned in my you know, career so far is something that I never learned in medical school or residency, which is that anxiety can actually be a habit, right? And worrying, ready for this, the feeling of anxiety, here's this habit loop, the feeling of anxiety triggers the mental behavior of worrying. I never realized, oh, we can have these mental behaviors, not just about eating and smoking. Worrying can be a habit unto itself. And there's this research that goes back to the 80s suggesting that worrying is rewarding because it makes us feel like we're in control. Hmm. Well, spoiler alert, it doesn't give us control. It just makes us feel like we're in control or at least doing something. So yeah, I'll just add. So that gave me this idea to, oh, well, maybe we could actually make a an app to help people with anxiety based on this habit loop thing that I never learned or slept through this, the class in medical school where I was supposed to learn that this could be the case. Granted, nobody actually had been using this as a methodology to help people stop worrying. So we had to test it out. So we developed this unwinding anxiety app. We do a randomized controlled trial with people with generalized anxiety disorder, like the worst of the worst. And we got a 67% reduction in anxiety, in, in these clinically validated anxiety scores, whereas the control group only had a 14% reduction on par with medications. Hmm. So you can think of it as about one in five patients uh, that I give the best medications to is going to show a significant reduction in symptoms uh, of anxiety. Whereas with this, it's called number needed to treat, it's 5.2. The smaller the number, the better. In this study, that number needed to treat was 1.6. So you train somebody to work with their own mind by training them to see how their mind works and how they get stuck in these habit loops. And you can even help people unwind these anxiety habit loops. I, I named the book, the, uh, credit to my wife who, who came up with the name uh, for the book and the app on running anxiety. But the idea is we get all wound up, all contracted, all closed yeah. down and stuck in these habit loops and these knots of anxiety. And the idea is, Curious awareness can help us step out. For example, if we're getting caught up in a habit loop of worrying, what if we bring in some curiosity and instead of going, oh no, I feel anxious, we can go, oh, here's anxiety. What does this feel like? Already, it starts to open us up and helps us step out of that habit loop. I won't go into the research, but we've even done studies 
showing that curiosity is more rewarding than worrying or frustration or anxiety. When you're in front of a patient or a classroom or a podcast audience who are seated here with their arms crossed hearing this, thinking, Doc, you don't know what you're talking about, man. You don't know my life. You don't know how many things I have going on. And uh, being curious about it won't help me here. How do you respond to that? <laughs> I say, I feel you. You know, lots, and I certainly don't know what's going on in everybody's lives, but I do know a lot of my patients, a lot of the folks in our programs come in and say exactly that. I'm feeling overwhelmed. And so I just start by saying, well, what have you tried to help you not to step out of those loops? And like, I've tried everything. And the fact that they're coming to see me or using one of my programs suggests that they haven't benefited enough. Otherwise, they wouldn't need to come use our, our app or, or come see me as a patient. So then I say, well, okay, if, if all that stuff you've tried hasn't worked, and most people say it's left them exhausted, frustrated, and defeated because they've tried everything and they feel like nothing's going to work, we start with the basics, just like you and I talk through. It's like, well, this is how your mind works. For example, I, I wrote about a case in my clinic in the Unrunning Anxiety book uh, about this guy named, I call him Dave in the book. And he comes in 30 years of generalized anxiety disorder, full-blown panic disorder, all this. And I pull out a sticky note and I start writing down trigger behavior result as I'm taking his history. And I'm like mapping out his habit loop. And then I read it, you know, go back to him. I'm like, okay, let me see if I got this straight. You have this fear that you're going to get in a car accident. There's the trigger. Then you avoid driving on the highway. There's the behavior. And then you don't get panic attacks. Is That's the result. And he's like, yeah. And then I draw arrows between those three and his eyes get really wide. And he's like, oh, I never noticed that before. And so then we walk, I walk him through the habit loop. And he feels, he's like, wow, this is empowering, right? So that's where I start is like just helping people understand how their brain works. Nobody's come away saying, I didn't want it. That's not helpful to know how my mind works. It's inspiring. And that's where we start, even with overwhelm, with anything. Because when we're overwhelmed, when, when typically there's, there are multiple habit loops at play there. And often yeah. habit loops upon habit loops where we're getting into these unhealthy coping mechanisms where we're suddenly on social media a lot or we're stress eating or we're smoking cigarettes or all these other things that don't help. One of my favorite quotes from your, I think it came from one of your books, is forgiveness is giving up hope of a better past. Yeah, and I don't remember who, where I got that quote, but I, you know, it was somebody, attributed uh, to somebody, I didn't come up with it. I love it. It's so good, man. I had to read it like three times to make sense of it, but it's, it's a great, honest quote. Tell me what it means. It is. Well, often we, we look at our past and we go, oh no, it sucked <laughs> or something happened and it sucked. And then we beat ourselves up over not being a better person or having that happen to us or something, you know? And so we spend all this time where we're worrying about the future or we're regretting the past and we're wallowing and making ourselves suffer in the present moment. So what can we do? Well, we can forgive. And that's why I love this, you know, giving up hope of a better past. We keep hoping, oh, I wish it couldn't have been this way. But the past is the past. That's why it's called the past. We can't change it. 
So instead of spending all that energy wallowing, we can repurpose that energy to learning, growing, and thriving. Oh, let me see if I can just forgive, you know, let, let go of that, giving up that hope. So basically forgiving ourselves, others, situations, the world, whatever, so that, that we can put that baggage down and move on. Mm. It's not about ignoring or suppressing the past. Often, for a lot of my patients, it's about honoring. So for example, if they've had a traumatic history, often as a kid, they would do things like somebody in our Unwinding Anxiety program who described how he would, he learned to worry as a kid because that was the only thing he could do to kind of help deal with being abused as a kid because he didn't have control over, over his situation. Right. So he, he, in his 60s, he's, how do I work with this worry? He had to honor his kid. Like that was the best he could do as a kid so he could let go of that and move on in the present and live into a better future. Mm. We are uh, at almost the end of our time. We wrap every podcast with seven questions. They're called the Live Inspired Seven. But before we get there, you're speaking to an audience that are tuning in from 50 states and about 150 different countries. Many of them, if not all of them, are dealing with some anxiety in some aspect of their life. As we deal with overwhelm and uncertainty and anxiety and then handle the addictions that also show up in our life in addition to it, what's your advice or a, a clear next step on what we should do next? Well, I would say we've gone through some very basic steps in our conversation today. And so I would say, use your brain. <laughs> Let's be specific. One, step one, map out whatever habit loop it is that's causing suffering. Step two, ask yourself, what am I getting from this? So that we can get that negative prediction error and see very clearly it's not helping us. Step three, I say bring in, there's two superpowers that we all have that most of us don't use enough. One, curiosity. Curiosity is a great way to help us be with our experience, whether it's thoughts, emotions, sensations, so that we don't have to act on them or try to do something to fix ourselves, right? right? As part of our digital therapeutic programs, I run a live group every Wednesday. So anybody anywhere in the world can join uh, through Zoom. And I was talking to somebody and I said, okay, here's this radical notion because he, he was getting in this loop of trying to fix himself based on you know, traumatic history. And I said, here's a radical notion. What if there's nothing wrong with you to fix? So for anybody that's trying to go and buy out the self-help section at the bookstore or on Amazon, just explore that. Like, could that be a habit itself? Yeah. And can we get curious, notice that habit, ask ourselves, what am I getting from this? And then bring that curiosity in to be with those urges to try to fix ourselves. That's what this gentleman and I explored together. And as part, second superpower that works hand in hand with curiosity is kindness. So we often judge ourselves, beat ourselves up for not being good enough to fix ourselves when fixing ourselves isn't the problem. It's the habit of fixing ourselves that's the problem. And it's not our fault. It's just a habit. So can we be kind to ourselves and recognize, oh, that's a habit. That's just my brain, my old survival brain trying to help me out. It's not helping. So can I be kind to myself, bring that awareness and that curiosity and that kindness together to help me step out of those habit loops and then notice, oh, 
wow, it feels better to step out of these habit loops. I call this finding the bigger, better offer. I love how practical you are as a researcher and neuroscientist and all these fancy aspects to your bio. And yet you were able to break it down to make it super practical for us, us humans tuning in all around the country, man, and all around the world. So I appreciate that about you, Judd. We have seven questions, man. Let's race to the finish line together. Question number one is what's been the most impactful book that you've ever read? <laughs> That's a trick question. I, there's not a single most impactful book. There's so many great books, but from a life perspective, there was a, the Pali Canon, <laughs> the Buddhist doctrine. And that's basically these stories of how the Buddha became enlightened and him teaching others to wake up. And I would have to say the, some of those, those suttas, those teachings in there have been directly, that's basically what I drew from to develop these programs to help people with smoking, eating, anxiety. But also to do all this neuroscience work, basically to prove what he, well, reprove or in modern neuroscience, confirm what he had already known. So I'd have to say the polycanon, most, most important. What's one positive characteristic or trait that you possessed as a kid growing up in Indiana that you wish you exhibited as, as brilliantly today? Curiosity. <laughs> well, man, if your home caught fire. And all living things are out and you have an opportunity of running back inside and grabbing one physical item. What would you grab? My violin. If you could sit on a bench with that violin on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you like to be next to? The Buddha. <laughs> that dude was a genius. What's the best advice the Buddha or some great professor or your wife or anybody else ever gave you? So the best advice you've ever received is? Chill out. <laughs> that might be similar to your next answer. So question number six is if you could go back in time a little bit and whisper some advice to, to, to yourself at age 20, what would you say to you? I'd say pay attention and learn how your brain works. Dr. Judd Brewer, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? Stay curious. Dr. Judd, my friend, neuroscientist, Washington University grad, my hometown of St. Louis, Missouri. I want to thank you for staying curious and for challenging the rest of us to do likewise. Thank you. This was a really fun conversation. I had a blast. My friends, that's Dr. Judd Brewer. My name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. Well, my friends, I love when we are able to welcome thought-leading experts onto the Live Inspired podcast to share their passion and their research and their tools so that you and I can create a life filled with joy, with purpose, with fulfillment, and with better habits. Who doesn't need some of those? And if you want to continue this conversation today, and why would you not, join us right now at Live Inspired Together. This is our free members-only virtual community. It is designed to help you and me and us collectively embrace the power of perspective, the gifts we already possess, and the truth that our best days are in front of us. You may be asking yourself right now, well, John, where do we join this lovely community? 
Let your fingers do the walk-in right now. Join me at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash together. I'll be there waiting for you, and I'm looking forward to it. If you enjoyed this conversation today as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, you're going to love the conversation we did a couple years back with Mel Robbins. When Mel was at rock bottom, her anxiety was debilitating. She could hardly get out of bed. And yet today, she's a New York Times bestselling author of The Five-Second Rule. She's helped millions of individuals transform their lives with simple tools to become more confident, more effective, and more fulfilled. You want to learn about Mel's life story and what it means for you. I'm glad you asked. You can do so at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast, where we will have a link to episode 87. Leaders, family, friends, I'm grateful to do life with you online, and I'm looking forward to living into the truth with you that the foundation is firm, the headwinds may be real, but the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. Helians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at keelycompanies.com.